Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. I have today uh, Simon Dixon, the CEO and co-founder of Bank to the Future. Simon, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me and looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. I've been looking forward to talking to you for a long time. Tell folks uh, what Bank to the Future does. Okay, so um, Bank to the Future was really something that we, we started working on in 2010. Uh, the original vision was to allow for the investing in private equity online. Um, way back in, in that time, it seems like a long time ago, you know, crowdfunding had become something. And um, we were based in the UK at the time, and our goal was to um, allow for people to invest in equity online and kind of make venture capital a bit more, um, bit more accessible and, and online. That little did we know that we would spend about four years securing licenses and, and all sorts of stuff um, around that to allow that to happen because um, no one was interested um, from the regulatory side. Uh, in the meantime, um, I, I spoke at the very first Bitcoin conference in the world. Um, I, I wrote uh, the first published book that included Bitcoin, um, and uh, we, you know, we were we were uh, quietly investing in the industry um, around about 2011 onwards. Wow. Um, what was the first conference, by the way? Where was it? What was it called? Yeah, no, it was held in Prague. There was about 30 to 40 people there. I'd say maybe 20 of them were like real hardcore computer scientists and about another 20 were activists that, that, that wanted a world without government. Hmm. Um, and uh, it was sponsored by Mt. Gox. There was a startup p pitching there called uh, BitPay, a guy called Tony Glippy that we later invested in. And uh, the price of Bitcoin had crashed to $3 during the conference. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's yeah. crazy. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we, we were doing that. And then... Um, <clears throat> As our, you know, investments in the in the sector matured, um, we were originally, you know, really we got invited because we were talking about the difference between Bitcoin and banking. And prior to this, I worked in investment banking and I left in 2006 to work on, uh, you know, um, explaining systemic risks in banking. And um, that kind of led me to being invited to that first Bitcoin conference. And what led us to wanting to create a Bank to the Future, which I co-founded with Bliss Dixon. Um, and, um, yeah, we, we were working on the licenses for a long time. Um, as, as Bitcoin matured, um, we realized that we wanted to use the platform. We didn't really need any VC funding. Um, we didn't need to create a scalable tech startup in order to try and pitch VCs. So, 
uh, we decided just to use the platform and the, the, the registrations that we had achieved to support the Bitcoin and blockchain sector. Um, and so through that, we were early seed investors in many of the most valuable companies in the industry now, from Bitstamp to Kraken to Bitfinex to BitPay, BitPaysa, Unocoin, Bitso, and about 100 others um, in the industry. And we were also investing in some of the very first uh, tokens that were around. The very first one was Mastercoin. Uh, then there was Storage and MadeSafe. Uh, and then later Ethereum, and then Ethereum led into hundreds and thousands of tokens. Um, and uh, so that was kind of, uh, we, we decided just to use the platform to really get more investment into the industry before VCs were interested in investing. Um, and uh, our investments matured, the uh, Bitcoin matured, uh, the ecosystem matured, um, and it kind of became a, a self-funding mechanism whereby the more um, we invested in, the more we allowed um, people to co-invest in, um, the more the industry was maturing. And then eventually, you know, it became uh, as big as it is today with a, you know, a, as close to a $500 billion market today. Um, so, um, and uh, just been in love with the sector ever since, really. Okay. Well, um, I know that um, crowdfunding laws came about uh, in the U.S. to help allow for it at some point. Do you know when that was? And how did that affect your platform? Did it help it or did you have to do all the hard work and then were you responsible for crowdfunding laws, you think? Well, um, three years before the Jobs Act, the UK were pitching the regulators called, uh, at the time they were called the FSA, they're now called the FCA. Um, and uh, the UK regulators were the very first to put together a, a structure whereby you could invest in private equity online. Um, that really boomed, and there was about three platforms of ours at the time. Um, and uh, later, Jobs Act came along, which was about three years later, where they gradually started introducing, you know, um, loosening the rules on general solicitation and who could be investing. Um, and then after Jobs Act, you, you had one country at a time kind of adjusting. But we took a different approach because we were so early in the Bitcoin and blockchain sector, we had to be global in order to find enough liquidity because there just wasn't anyone really interested, that many people interested in invest, investing in the sector. Originally, we were doing right. it from the UK, which meant that we could only have UK investors investing into UK companies. Um, you know, Bitcoin just doesn't think that way and cryptocurrency doesn't think that way. So right. uh, we had to deregister, um, re-register with the Cayman Island Monetary Authority, and then we just worked on different licenses and acquisitions. And so we've recently got a stake in a U.S. broker dealer. And now we want to launch our secondary trading market for, um, for you know, blockchain-based um, securities. Uh, we, you know, we, we're, we were looking at the ATS licenses and uh, we've recently acquired a company uh, that allows us to do that because they're registered with the SEC. Um, and then we've got partners around different jurisdictions in different countries and we've worked painfully and you know uh, over the years and um, on hiring lawyers in each different country and figuring out a custom onboarding process uh, for each different jurisdiction in line with their securities laws and who is actually able to invest and which which way they're able to invest right so when it comes to regulation you're the uh, the person out there in the jungle trying to hack through the the jungle and get through huh well we, we like to think we you know uh, as I mean, you know, I, I was an investment banker, the co-founder was in retail banking, and, you know, we, we came from a banking background, but we left because we hated banking so much and wanted to make change in banking. Um, so we had enough of a compliance and finance background 
Um, but we were also, you know, early Bitcoiners. So we understand what, you know, where they come from in terms of their mission, their vision, the decentralization. Um, and so we think that now when when ICOs and really started to boom, um, you know, we, we were there in the background, really, with the licenses when the regulations come in, we'll invest in them the sector until while well, the regulations are uncertain but once the licenses right. and, and registrations are needed then you know we're here as like an intermediary that, that understands the old world but was part of this new world yeah i would think you have um, a pretty well-informed perspective of banking and so where do you think um cryptocurrency is going uh you think it's headed towards regulation uh, you know what do you see for the next year the next couple of years um, so, I mean, that, that that is a very good question that helps people understand the difference between Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. So B- Bitcoin is unregulatable. It's a censorship resistant store of value cryptocurrency that has a payment system attached to it. There's also a technology and a protocol um, that allow people to build, um, you know, kind of like a bank in a box where they can build on top of it. Um, now, the the reason that Bitcoin has that role is because it's the only decentralized one. No one knows who created it. Well, some people do have su- suspicions, um, but no one really knows who created it. It was created at a time when no one cares. And it's the only one that is actually decentralized and has attracted the most efficient development team to try and help it scale. Um, now, everything else, a lot of these ICOs and tokens, they're actually created by people that you know. And when they're created by people that they know, it means that you add the added risk that the regulators are able to knock on somebody's door and say, um, please, we don't like what you're doing here. Whereas Bitcoin just can't have that. Um, so their their end is like the, the major difference between a lot of the things that you see versus the one that is actually, I believe, going to really change the world and the financial system. Um, but saying that, Bitcoin cannot be everything to everyone. Um, it does one thing incredibly well, which is censorship resistant transactions, allowing you to own your own money, spend your own money. And it's based upon a sound monetary policy whereby um, the, 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 over the long term, the, the price is designed to increase over time if the utility continues to increase because it's got a fixed supply. And you can't get more of them, so you, you, the only way you can get them is to spend more of them. Um, and as long as the utility increases, then that continues over the time with a lot of volatility in between. But now what happened um, you know, with things like smart contracts and Ethereum is um, people started to realize that they could build um, their own types of tokens on top of you know, uh, another type of blockchain that was built to do, to do different things um, than Bitcoin. Um, and then all many, many financial products are being built of these different blockchains, and that creates different user cases. And now everything is kind of interoperable where you can switch from one to the other. And the, the, the amount of innovation and technology that is being built around and on top of these different, um, you know, these different technologies and, and, and cryptocurrencies is just something that is moving way faster than any government, any regulator, any business, any venture capitalist, even us at Bank to the Future, whose full-time job is to try and keep up with it, just can't keep up. Um, and so what I think the next wave of disruption you'll see, um, and one of the things we're interested in, is um, and the, uh, having disruptions in IPOs and securities markets. And so we believe that many of the companies that we work with, particularly in our niche at Bitcoin, blockchain and fintech, none of them want to IPO. None of them will IPO. Uh, they much rather have a blockchain-based security that you can trade as a cryptocurrency. Um, all it needs is some kind of regulated structure. So while the cryptocurrencies are unregulatable, um, the companies that operate within the financial system and the ecosystem 
are regulatable and you've got different countries all around the world that are deciding whether to bar that, embrace it. You know, you've got the extreme where uh, China came along and said, we, we need more control. Uh, we'll try and ban. Right. And so they all moved to another country. Um, and then you have a, a jurisdiction like uh, Japan that recognizes this is going nowhere. Let's tax it and let's regulate the, the financial institutions so that we can become the center of it and have all the jobs. And then you've got lots of little islands like Isle of Man and, and various other places that are saying, hey, this is our opportunity to create safe havens and reinvent banking and be a part of the new financial system. Um, and uh, places like Singapore and various other places like that. And then you've got countries like the US who have the most to lose by the success of cryptocurrency uh, because the, the dominance of their Silicon Valley and the US dollar means that, um, you know, the U.S. has now become the worst place in the world to raise finance um, because you right. want to get away from you want to get away from the SEC in order to try and take advantage of this new technology. Um, and obviously, Silicon Valley aren't so happy with that. Um, and so they're, they're trying to figure out how they're going to adjust to that. And um, and so, you know, you kind of have these two tiered structures. You have the regulated version of companies that are doing operating and that's booming at the same time as the completely decentralized peer-to-peer unregulatable side of it and the way that Bitcoin originally was designed and that's booming as well and then you have that intersection which is where most friction is like the exchanges that sit between the two worlds um, and governments are, are, are really hell-bent on you know making sure that they can either ban them or control them um, and obviously banks sit in that picture as well where they have nothing to gain from this industry so they just censor the industry by not providing banking services. Um, going back to the early part of this, you know, you were involved in Bitcoin super early. How did you find out about it? And, you know, why were you so interested in it, you know, coming from the banking world? So I, I wrote, um, so I, I wrote, well, originally a load of papers. I was blogging on the subject of um, systemic risk in banking. And that's why I left investment banking in 2002. Um, and uh, I, w- I, I talked about, and then when I wrote, this book called Bank to the Future. It was about you know three things in banking that make it you know real systemically risky, which is that when you deposit your money with a bank, the bank becomes the legal owner of your money and therefore they control it and censor it. Um, the second is that when they become the legal owner of your money, they can spend it as they wish, and if they take too much risk with that money, uh, then you end up losing your deposit, and it requires governments to guarantee it because there's systemic risk in the system. Um, and finally, uh, the monetary policy, whereby over the years People think that money is created by a central bank, but it's actually created by a retail bank and it's backed by debt. And it's inflationary money, because, um, which means that it's guaranteed to go down in value over time. And you have to work harder in order to earn more dollar or more pound or more euro or more renminbi. Whereas then, uh, because I, I gave that speech, uh, a very early developer in Bitcoin, a gentleman, an activist, I call him more like a, a guy called Amir Taki. Um, he invited me to that first Bitcoin conference, and I gave that first speech on the difference between Bitcoin and banking, which um, was with banks, they own your money, they're the legal owner. With Bitcoin, it gave you the first way of earning your own money, just like cash, but digitally and transferably anywhere in the world. Um, with banks, they spend your money. Uh, with Bitcoin, it's got a peer-to-peer payment system, which means that you can transfer it censorship resistant to anyone uh, for anything, and no one can tell you you can't. Um, And then finally, it had a monetary policy, which was the opposite of an inflationary currency in that it was a fixed money supply, which had many more properties like gold in the the supply was fixed and it can't be changed. And there was no 
monetary policy that has a connection to any country and it doesn't care about any country. And therefore, you have this independent monetary policy and a deflationary currency where uh, your purchasing power goes up over time rather than down. Um, and right. so I gave that, that speech and, and that's kind of uh, how I got involved and uh, never looked back since. Yeah, you, you know, I always I'm curious. Do you have any insight into who Satoshi Nagamoto might be? I got my suspicions, um, but uh, I can't, no one knows, and that's that's what makes it so powerful. Did you ever communicate with Satoshi or, or Hal Finney or any of those people? No, not not me. No, I was, you had to be a developer to speak to those people in the time. I was the finance guy that was trying to communicate um, the technology in a way that normal people could understand. Okay, very good. So, the um, people that spoke Satoshi were all diehard, you know, uh, computer scientists and. Uh, technical architects, and that's certainly not my skill set. Mm, no problem. So if we if we fast forward to to today, um, you know, if I'm a company and I'm interested in Bank to the Future, what's like a, the outline of what you guys do? Um, you know, how does it look today? What kind of companies are on your platform, and what are they raising? And you know, just give me a few examples. Sure. So um, you know, we we we've been about supporting. You know, we we had a very simple mission, which which was. We believe the future of finance is going to look very different from the past. And that was really what underpinned it when we wrote that book, when I wrote that book, sorry, Bank to the Future. And um, the thing is, is we wanted to be investors in, we, w- we originally wanted to create a, a, a bank that didn't have the same systemic risks that I talk about. Um, and that turned out to be an incredibly hard mission. I remember speaking to some regulators and they said, in order to do that, you're going to have to step down as CEO and hire a banker that has experience as, as, as a banker CEO. And so I said, what, so they can recreate the same thing? Um, and it was just, it's just so much friction in, that, um, in that, that goal. So instead, we decided that, well, what if we could, you know, as Bitcoin um, became more and more um, what it is, we decided that we, we would like to diversify and invest widely across the industry because we just didn't know which fintech companies were going to succeed. And so we wanted to invest in them, all of the ones that looked promising. Um, and, uh, you know, so we, we've done lots of exchanges. I think one of our um, more interesting stories was uh, how we helped uh, Bitfinex uh, recover from the, the exchange hack that they recently had. Uh, they're in the news a lot right now because um, they've become yeah. so large. Um, but, uh, you know, when, when they got hacked, um, we created uh, some financial engineering that they did to launch a token um, to repay the people that lost money in the hack. And then we allowed for the conversion of equity using that token, using Banks of the Future as the platform. Um, and that helped draw down the debt and then later later helped turn it into kind of the unicorn that it is today. Um, and that was one of our you know, more interesting stories. And we've got a couple of unicorns through the platform. Um, and uh, you know, the other thing is that a lot of the companies pay dividends in cryptocurrencies. So you know, we can do some of the companies do like real-time dividends. Um, using the blockchain to distribute them. Um, and we've got some really interesting kind of user cases where we use financial innovation um, to do that. The thing we're really excited about next is because the way that we always structured it is we would act as one institutional investor, but we pulled together lots of investors through our platform so that the company didn't have the bureaucracy of having all these shareholders, but one institutional investor, but they could also benefit from having lots of investors without all the burden and headache. But now what we're really excited about is uh, we, we, re, we um, with this year, the goal is to uh, take a lot of that equity um, and allow it to be um, tokenized and put it on a blockchain so that it can be traded 
back and forth, but in a, in a, in a way where we bake some of the securities laws into the contract and the way the product actually works. Um, so we're really keen to the, the phrase that we came up with is make equity great again. Uh, the reason we came up with that phrase yeah. is because, um, you know, ICOs took a lot of the attention away from equity because they were liquid and that just attracted billions and billions into the industry. Uh, right. But if you could actually make equity liquid like a cryptocurrency, then I think everyone would have loved to have invested in the equity and actually have some ownership stake or, or, or shareholder rights. Um, and so our goal is to kind of merge those two technologies and, and see what we can do there. Um, and we're really excited about that. Um, we we also vet, um, played around with our own, you know, token sale to kind of experience that whole process. And so we recently launched the BFT token, um, which was an incredible experience. Um, it sold out uh, $30 million within 15 hours by the end of the wow. pre-sale. And we're about to go into the, the, the public sale. Um, where we're combining some of the best lessons of token sales, but with the compliance and, and, and you know, proper procedures that make this a bit more sustainable that we've developed at Bank to the Future. Yeah, what's your view on uh, the ICO market? I mean, I, every day is a new ICO, and, you know, there's debates on whether this is a security token or this one's a utility token. You know, what, what kind of insights do you have there, and where is that? part of the market going, you think? Well, that debate tends to happen mainly in the US, and it's all around the definition of a security by the SEC. But there's a much greater world outside the US. Um, there's a much bigger investment community in Asia. Um, and a lot of these jurisdictions have, you know, um, they know what they regulate, they know what they don't regulate. But in my opinion, the only, you know, th there's kind of two markets. Again, just like Bitcoin has the regulated market for the transfer of fiat money to cryptocurrency, um, the same will happen with ICOs, and then you have the decentralized version. So I believe the invention of allowing a technology that doesn't have a business model, you know, take Bitcoin, for example. Bitcoin didn't do an ICO because it was the original token, I guess. Um, right. But, uh, you know, it, 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 the technology that doesn't have a business model that can launch a token and allow the early adopters to be incentivized to its success um, and it becomes an incredible marketing strategy to help the adoption of that technology um, where there was no business model you could have pitched to a venture capitalist or any loan you could have got from a bank. In itself, that is a game-changing concept. The problem is, is that people take that concept and they abuse it. So you get startups that are looking to just decentralize anything just to get hold of people's Bitcoin and Ethereum, um, and you have lots of scams in that market and lots of, um, you know, buyer beware scenarios. At the same time, you have established companies that are now looking to build an ecosystem around the token, um, and it really aligns their customers, their investors, the, the product. Um, and so there's really good things, there's really bad things. I think the only safe way for an established company to do is kind of assume it is a security, um, unless it is really is a protocol technology. Um, and you will have those two things. But any company launching a token um, in nine times out of 10, I think you should treat it as a security. But then if you're a decentralized protocol launching a new you know, kind of blockchain or something like that, then I think you can treat that as a technology and, and a software license. And really kind of the rule of thumb is if you, if you, want, to if you want to take on US purchases or investors, then treat it as a security. Um, but there is a utility world that's a lot safer outside of the the, the, the realm of the SEC. Um, but, you know, you can have both. And so at Bank for the Future, we, we made sure that we, we could take on 
um, you know, work with a broker dealer so that we could have a process for taking on U.S. investors um, and then a process for, for different jurisdictions. So it's an incredibly interesting space. It's a incredibly interesting sector. Um, governments, regulators, uh, banks all around the world do not know what to do with this. You know, they defensively, banks originally defensively tried to eliminate the word Bitcoin by popularizing the word blockchain. And then it turned out mm, the first yep. product Wall Street offered was Bitcoin trading, and they've built nothing on a blockchain yet. So um, it's, it's really interesting. Um, the disruption is immense. It's the most exciting time to be alive in financial history. And every day is a drama. Uh, and every day is a, 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 a kind yeah. of exciting and overwhelmed. We, we, you know, you, you talk about you're getting this ICO, that ICO. We just don't know what to do with the applications we're getting right now. And, and so we're kind of looking at um, tapping into the community and we launched a token to incentivize them to just support in the due diligence process of trying to filter through some of this deal flow. But every single sector and every single industry is now coming over to this industry. And that's very bad for the IPO market and very interesting uh, for the alternatives. Yeah, and a sea of ICOs, it's going to be very hard to do enough due diligence to find out which ones are good or not, you know. So um, Yeah, I mean, there's rules you can follow. You know, there's people that have built reputations in this industry uh, and they protect those reputations, um, you know, greatly. And so we kind of look for ICOs that have managed to persuade reputable people that have a lot to lose, a lot to lose that really don't get caught in the blockchain hype, but understand the true value of what this technology does. And so we look for ones that have advisors there. And um, we also know people in the industry. So it's it's a bit easier for, for us to kind of filter through, having been around for, for a while. Um, but still incredibly tricky. Um, and that's why we really need to, to tap into the wisdom of um, lots of people performing due diligence on top of the, the more centralized, you know, inside the due diligence that we can do being involved in this sector and relying on other people that put their name and reputations um, on the line to, to support projects. Yeah, I have a question. I hope it's not a, a rude question, but if um, if I wanted to, if I had a company and wanted to do an ICO, why not just do it on my own? Why go to Banks of the Future and have you guys help shepherd us through the process? What's the benefit to working with you? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so firstly, we, we do more equity and securities than um, than ICOs. So we, we do allow people to purchase tokens. Um, most people, we'd encourage them to do that on their own. Really, we offer some kind of, you know, you can try and spend the, the replicate the regulatory structures that we built over the last seven years, um, or you can benefit from all of our suite of um, protections and, and, and licenses and registrations that we built over the years. Um, and you don't have to do it all through us. We're completely open. The, the market is so big right now that if we find a deal we like, you can do your token sale all on your own. Um, but we have a very, very targeted community of ultra high net worth investors that um, understand the crypto community um, and have lots of different skill sets. And, and we can provide you know, these things don't sell themselves out. Um, you know, it costs, you know, anywhere between half a million to a million in order to do all of the regulations, um, all of the marketing and reach the, the outreach that makes these things successful uh, nowadays in the, in the current environment. So it's getting closer and closer to what it takes to do an IPO, but for very for a lot earlier for very different types of companies. Wow. Okay. Um, last question. Uh, so what is the typical, again, structure? So let's say, you know, have a company, an idea, I want to raise money, I come to you, um, you know, what are the costs? 
what are the what how much equity am I suggesting to give away? I mean, what is what are the parameters of what you consider to be a potentially successful launch would be? With, with equity, we would get involved in early stage ideas only if it was a very reputable team that's turned an early stage idea into something before. Um, but we tend to only co-invest in something that either a VC is invested in or a professional angel investor that knows the industry. And we will co-invest on the same terms. So it's not really the idea stage, it's, it's more later stage with us. Um, unless, you know, we, we do have early stage ideas, but that tends to be people that have a lot of a, a lot to lose and a reputation to lose um, and have kind of proven their worth to the industry already. So that that still that idea stage is, is probably not the type of thing we we unfortunately have a rejection rate and 95 percent of the application and only five percent get to interview and then from there we'll you know a percentage of those actually get to launch on the platform wow well not that you need more deal flow but um for people that want to uh you know talk to you about their their company their initiative what's the best way to get in touch with you uh so we we have an apply for finance button and a team of people that are, are constantly looking through these deals um, if you've got something in Bitcoin, blockchain, fintech, we, that's where we specialize. Um, and uh, you can just make a really quick application, upload your deck, um, and we'll get that reviewed. And, and if we think it's something that our investors will, will like, we're kind of investor-led and investor-driven. They let us know the types of things they'd like to see, um, and we try to find them. Um, then we'll, uh, we'll do a Skype call, we'll follow up, we'll get our team to interview. And if it feels like something that's right for our investors, then we'll, we'll go through a bit of due diligence and send out a contract. In terms of our business model, um, if, a, if a company wants to raise finance with us for an equity deal, then it would be 5% um, of the amount that we invest or raise through our syndicate. Um, if it's a token sale, we do 5% of the, the Bitcoin and ETH invested and 5% of the token. Um, and for the investors, uh, they don't actually pay to invest. But if we pay, if they get returns like dividends or exit, then we charge 5% of any dividends or exit that we distribute. Okay, very good. Um, last question. I don't know if it's fair to ask, but is there any project that you're more excited about than almost anything else right now? Actually, one of the most exciting projects that I'm really looking forward to um, is RSK. And RSK is a technology that, um, and you know, there's, there's two things I'm really excited about at the moment, Lightning Network and RSK. Um, Lightning Network is the technology that allows people to um, build kind of, a, 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 I guess you could think of it like a side chain on top of Bitcoin where you can build a Lightning Network and then people can transact incredibly cheap and incredibly fast. And then the, the transactions are batched into one transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, I think that that's going to open up a wave of innovation and contribute towards the scalability of these blockchains, which is the biggest bottleneck um, at the moment. And the second one is RSK, which essentially, um, you know, allows uh, a process of kind of turning Bitcoin into what Ethereum became, where you can build smart contracts on top of Bitcoin, um, you know, the most trusted and reputable blockchain uh, with the most decentralization. But then rather than actually going direct and because, you know, the biggest problem with Ethereum is that it's so many things to so many people that that opens up a lot of vulnerabilities and bugs. Whereas Bitcoin does something really razor targeted so that it has less bugs and, and, and you know, more, um, less vulnerabilities. And it's got, it has proven to have worked to scale the technology. But RSK is technology that sits on top of that so people can become a lot more experimental um, and do some of the things that you might, you, you might have only done on Ethereum before. 
um, but on the, the reliable and responsible blockchain with the best development. So that's really exciting to me. Um, and uh, oh, there's so, there's, there's so much coming through. We're excited of what we can do with the BF token on Bank to the Future. Um, and then, you know, we're really excited about seeing which companies want to list with us and launch securities um, in, a, in, a, in a compliant way and see what kind of disruption that has. Uh, on the, the, the IPO and traditional stock market. Well, very good. Well, Simon, it's been great to talk to you. Uh, there's, I don't know, there's probably hours more material that I could we could cover, but i got to let you go. But thanks again. And uh, again, uh, best way to get in touch with you is to go to what, banktothefuture.com? Um, best way to get in touch with me is Twitter. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Simon Dixon, D-I-X-O-N, twit, T-W-I-T-T, uh, at Simon Dixon was taken. And I didn't really know what Twitter was at the time, so I, I put Twit on the end of my name. Got a few followers, and now it's stuck. I, I can't get rid of it. So I'm at Simon Same. Dixon Twit. <laughs> Very good. Simon, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you for your questions. The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.